Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to another Rahalasua Book Club. I am joined by Natalie Haynes, who's going to be talking about her fantastic book, which I've greatly enjoyed, called Stone Blind, Medusa's Story. Hello, Natalie, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I am all right, thank you for asking. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thank you. Um, now, I mean, I was going to say last time we, we saw each other, but that's not true. But uh, when I knew you in the past, you were a stand-up comedian when we first met. Yes, that is uh, true. And uh, then you haven't entirely left performance comedy behind, but you have become a an author of some renown. Do you want yeah. to? Do you want to? <laughs> You're so suspicious. <laughs> How well, you know, that happen, hey? Well, it's sort of you know, it's sort of weird because like it doesn't feel like that long, but it is a, like a it's long a really time. Long time. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, no, it feels like coming. about twenty minutes. But, but I quit in two thousand seven, so right. yeah, fifteen years ago. I yes. Left. So in those fifteen years, a lot has happened, and I was aware that you were writing books, and I was aware you were doing Radio Four series, um, but I don't think I was aware to to how amazingly successful you are, which we'll get onto. <laughs> 
you want to, for those of you, for those of you. It's because in real life I look like such a shambles. It just seems inconceivable that anything could be going right behind the scenes. I just think so many things are going on with people, you know, and like you, then you check back in with them and you go, oh, bloody hell, you're the Prime Minister of the Central African Republic. Um do you want to explain a bit about yourself and your journey for people who who um, who may not have uh, who are paying exactly as much attention as, as you were? As me, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I did stand up. Well, sort of. We kind of overlapped, didn't we, for a while? Yeah. Um, so we did a lot of the same Edinburghs because I was there two thousand two to six, mm-hmm. um, and then I decided I wanted to sort of move into writing more um, and gigging less. And so I said, right, that's it. I'm retiring from stand-up. And uh, Marcus Brigstock said, yeah, you'll be back in two years. And I was like, I will not. Don't be stupid. That's sweet of you. I like that you feel that way, but I will not. And then I think it was, he was absolutely, I mean, it was about two years when later when I, I was starting to do the sort of work out how I was going to try and sell my first nonfiction book, which is called The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Um, and that came out in 2010. And I think before it was even out, I was trying to work out how I could kind of perform a version of the book because book festivals basically want you to they're expecting they're set up for you to sit and be interviewed or be on a panel and I'm you know I come from stand-up I'm a massive narcissist I don't want to share the stage with anyone (laughs) I resent it the entire time someone else is on a stage when I am so I was like well surely I could just like give a talk and it'll be more fun than like a lecture but and that very rapidly has morphed into what became the radio series Nestle Haynes stands up for the classics um which we have done eight series of now. That's amazing. Uh, it's since, amazing. Since 2014. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favourite things at parties is when um, a man of uncertain calibre decides he will neg me. Um, <laughs> by he's, He gets introduced. Usually it's on those fundraising things, you know, where you're there to try and screw money out of somebody for charity. Uh, not literally in my case, I might add. And, uh, certainly not in this instance. Um, and somebody said to this guy, oh, this is Natalie. She writes books and she has a radio show about classics. And he said, oh, do you get many listeners? And I went, yeah, 1.6 million per episode <laughs> 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 anyway strolled off into the sunset drank champagne on someone else's dollar it was great um and then yeah at the same time i've been writing um sort of novels and and non-fiction so um but mainly set in the ancient world or about the ancient world or inspired by the ancient world so my first novel amber fury in 2014 is set in contemporary well contemporary to then obviously that's now history uh edinburgh um but it has a it, it's basically a retelling a modern retelling of the Oresteia. um and then all my uh, other books have been overtly set in the bronze age or about the bronze age so that's um children of jocasta a thousand ships and the newest one the medusa one uh stone blind and i wrote a non-fiction book about women in greek myth too called pandora's jar that's it Fantastic. that's everything i've done since i last well since i last saw you we were doing the audiobook recordings of our audiobooks yes. but in general that's everything i did since i last saw you and so it's you know it's it's astonishing and it's it's um i, I really love this book i wasn't quite sure what to expect but it but it, it you know it's a obviously a a slightly postmodern take on these myths I, what I always loved about the the Greek gods and and the Roman gods also is it sort of makes more sense of why the world is how it is, uh, yes. and that it's chaotic and that maybe ruled over by people who don't. Yeah, my gods who don't really care petulant people yeah i mean <laughs> that's really from homer i didn't even yeah. have to be postmodern about that quite the opposite <laughs> yeah. the version of the gods that you see in the iliad are exactly like that you know right. and this is a question that's been being asked since well i mean uh, plato uh, there's a dialogue called the euthyphro about 
piety. Um, and uh, Socrates is in conversation, I guess, with Euthyphro. I can't remember the details. Um, and he says, you know, what's pious? Is it that, that which the gods love? Or do they love something because it's already kind of pious? And Euthyphro says very confidently, oh, things are pious if the gods love them. And Socrates is like, well, what happens when the gods don't agree? What happens when they love opposite things? Because that happens yeah. in the Iliad all the time. And Euthyphro is like, I'm not having a nice time. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a question that's been being asked for two and a half thousand years is how do we cope with a with a set of gods who all want contradictory things? But it does make much more sense of the chaos that we often sort of find ourselves amid. I think. And also there's something quite wholesome in a way about having gods who have just special areas of expertise. You know, if I'm, you know, desperately wishing uh, I could meet somebody wonderful to fall in love with and I'm praying to a god who's also in charge of, you know, dealing with Ukraine (laughs) and world (laughs) hunger, then I might feel a little trivial. But if I'm making my offerings to Aphrodite, then that's that's her specific zone of expertise. And if I don't treat her properly she might punish me as she does plenty of people for example yeah. Hippolytus so you know it's just polite so that is a safer bet I think although obviously you know not very rational sure and I, I read your interest in the in the classics began with uh as I think it may have done for me with the film um uh Clash of the Titans yes um which I mainly remember for Judy Bowker getting into the bath I think she played Andromeda but I'm not even sure about that uh, but you focused but, on the important things, Richard, <laughs> and it was, was the lady in the bath. <laughs> she was lovely, Judy Barker. I'd forgotten about her a little bit, and she was uh, she was a, ter- a terrific actor and beautiful woman. Um, but uh, yeah, but uh, you know, because I think like you, uh, the, the Medusa is such an incredible story. Now, did uh, something I was interested, in, which you can probably help me with, did the ancient Greeks? Um, view these stories as primarily as entertainment or instruction or were they or did they treat if you do we know how they treated were they treated with reverence or did or was it because they feel very blockbustery just as stories right I know they do turn up as films but they 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 feel very filmic yeah well I think I mean they are very cinematic and they only get more cinematic as they're told and retold there's a sequence in Aeneid 6 um, by Virgil so Roman now not Greek but but imposing the um, kind of Greek, imposing Romans into Greek traditions, I guess. And in that sequence where um, Aeneas goes to the underworld, there's a there's a sequence in Aeneas 6 where he goes into extreme close-ups. So it starts with this sort of wide panning shot of the, the banks of the River Styx and then it comes right in close to Charon, the ferryman. And then we're suddenly right in looking at the wrinkles on his face. And it's like, how did you do that when cinema didn't exist? I don't understand. You know, when, when you had regular human eyes, how did that seem like the way to do this scene? So, right. yeah, there is something, I think, intrinsically cinematic about these huge and the epic scope of the Iliad in particular with its you know huge battle scenes where you'll suddenly come in and focus on a duel between two people and then pan back out and you know somebody dies and then suddenly we're moving around them and and bodies are being collected or fought over or wrangled it it is very cinematic and we can see how um this kind of performance of, of myth was treated because it happens in a slightly metatextual way inside the Odyssey, which is one of the <laughs> earliest examples of these myths to survive to us. So Homer is writing in the late eight, well, composing in the late eight, the early seventh century. So before there's alphabetic writing. Um, and uh, although there is other writing like Linear A and Linear B and hieroglyphs and things. Um, and he he is therefore telling the story of Odysseus getting home from 
Troy, which takes 10 years. Um, but in that story, there are quite often moments where a bard or a rhapsode, to give him his Greek name, performs a song. And there's a bit in... Oh, I should know this because I just memorised it for Radio 4, in about Odyssey 8, I think, or 7, 8, I think, um, where Odysseus is listening to this bard, uh, having just landed in Phaeacia, perform the story of Achilles at Troy, which obviously he had lived through. So he's like a character in the song that he's hearing, and he bursts right. into tears. And everyone's like, well, who are you? And he's like, oh, all right, books 9 to 12, I'm Odysseus, and here's my story. Um, and so, yeah, there's this sense that these stories are, are always being told and retold, even by the time the characters that are in them aren't home yet. They're yeah. already the subject of this incredible kind of mythic telling. So um, I, it would for sure have taken place at a feast, so it could have been quite a formal um, event. But the ones that we see in the Odyssey, you know, sacrifices are made to the gods, but it's not particularly an act of reverence to have this performance. It's more of an act of communality. You know, everyone comes together, there's eating, there's drinking, and that's how, you know, everyone... I mean, there's no box sets. I don't know what you want me to say. This is how everyone <laughs> kind of gets involved. And then when you yeah. get things like tragedy and comedy, that's much more of a formal performance to gods because they take place at a festival to Dionysus, the mm -hmm. god of wine and theatre and offerings are made. So there would have been, everyone would have been drunk. There would have been offerings of animals, but so it would have smelled like a barbecue, an abattoir and a barbecue because you'd be sacrificing <laughs> the animal and then burning the flesh and then everybody would be drinking. So yeah, it'd be quite the night out. Yeah. And, and But the characters are so strong. And I think Medusa is, you know, I think probably along with... I, I love the Cyclops as a kid. Uh, <laughs> we used to write... We did a sketch about the Cyclops. But Medusa is so... And I, I don't know how to what extent in my mind I've got it a bit conjoined with the Queen in uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, who also, <laughs> who also turned people to stone. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it's been constantly ripped off. I mean, Let parts me clear of this up for you. Turkish Delight, uh, yeah. Lion, Witch, Wardrobe. <laughs> no Turkish Delight, Medusa. You're but welcome. I, That's how I, I remember them. <laughs> I've got a memory of, like, you know, statues of, uh, of all the people who tried to kill Medusa approaching the, the caves but is that the line the witch in the wardrobe you know, i think, the I think that is... must be line the witch in the wardrobe yeah. because medusa at least in our extant narrative sources doesn't yeah. kill anyone i know this is a great shock because yeah. you know she's supposed to be the uber monster but in fact she's the uber weapon so when she has she has the capacity to petrify or lithify or uh, whichever word you choose but she seems not to practice it you know she she doesn't she doesn't kill the people that she is nearest to, um, which would be the obvious thing to do. Um, and I think this this version of her is is dictated by by the Harryhausen film, in my yeah. view, because in that, when Harry Hamlin as Perseus goes to to try and kill her, he and his comrades find her in a cave. They're you know preying on her. They're the hunters, but she is hunting them back. She's got a bow and arrow. She's got a slithery, snaky tail. No, none of this is from our ancient sources. Ancient sources have Gorgons, of which there are three, by the way, not one. She's not a solo character. Um, she has uh, wings in our ancient sources, but not a snaky tail. And the snaky tail is so popular that the Lego version of her has a snaky tail. So <laughs> it has really taken off. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think we get this sense of her as being very murderous. But actually, if you read, for example, the, the longest version to survive to us from the ancient world is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, focuses very heavily on Perseus, as one might expect. Um, but in that version, she, she kills loads of people after she's been killed. She's used yeah. as a weapon very successfully by Perseus. But that for sure is not the same thing as her being a killer, I think. No. And so with this book, you are it's very much seeing things 
uh, from her point of view and and not and, and questioning what is what is a monster and 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 what our view of a monster is uh, also Perseus becomes much more of a i mean anti-hero he's much more of an idiot than perhaps he is a seen. lot of an idiot but <laughs> i think in part, <laughs> in part is because there's the kind of what's the word i want there's like a there's an impossibility of communication so the kind of fun bit of this book to write the funner bits of it because you know a lot of it is very harrowing medusa isn't a monster she is the first monstered survivor of sexual assault you know she is literally turned into a monster as punishment because she has been raped in a temple so some of it was really harrowing to write and i cannot lie but some of it was an absolute ball and the bits that were an absolute ball were the bits where i was trying to make because perseus is he's a demigod he's the son of zeus and a mortal woman named danai and so he gets loads of help in every version of his story from the ancient world, from loads of different gods. He has he's borrowed shoes from Hermes, a hat from Hades. He's got Athene offering him advice. The Hesperides have lent him his backpack. You know, he's got a huge <laughs> roster of gods. And so, you know, generally that's presented to us. as like, look how, look how favoured he is because all these gods line up to help him. And of course, my opening kind of position was why does he need quite so many gods to help him? Is <laughs> yeah. it because he's a bit useless? And so the the problem for him, anyway, in my version, is that he's always having to negotiate with immortal beings who cannot begin to understand his concerns, and nor would they ever try. Because, yeah. Yeah, why should they? You know, they're alive forever. His lifespan is like 10 seconds tops to them. And so they're not really bothered. So to, to them, he seems incredibly stupid. And yeah. to him, they seem incredibly heartless. But actually, I hope it's just because their worlds, don't, you know, they collide, but they never fit. And and so, yeah, but it was fun to do. It was fun to write yeah. him. It was well, fun to write him dim. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of fun to read him dim. And I think to think of it that, you know, because even the minute you start thinking about his his quest is to basically stop his mum marrying someone he doesn't want his mum to marry. Yes. And he's going out to murder someone in order to do that. It seems dis. There's a disparity between, between, <laughs> between what he's trying to achieve and the chaos he causes on the way to do this. So it's a, it's a great observation, and it's you know it's uh, and absolutely the you know the uh, although you know how much did they 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 mean mean this at the time or how much did they just let it fly? But obviously, Greek myth is just basically a, a series of sexual assaults and yeah, even, I mean certainly if, if you read the Metamorphoses, or... yeah, the, then what you get is just one example of Zeus and occasionally Poseidon or Apollo or somebody assaulting a young woman or occasionally a young man. Yeah. after another and it is incredibly once you look at it in those terms i mean the what's the word i want like the unifying theme of the metamorphosis is is transformation it's it's nymphs or people or gods being transformed from one form of existence to another sometimes you change to an animal like acteon sometimes you change into a tree like daphne um but you, you could equally well say that the unifying theme almost always is and then someone tried to sexually assault them and they turned into a tree trying to avoid it or they were turned into a tree because they had been and so on. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's an incredibly... The past and indeed the present is an incredibly violent place for people who don't have very much power um, yeah. where there are predatory gods or men in play. So, yeah, it, it's it's always present. And what's, in a way, the most sympathetic thing about Perseus is that he isn't like like that at all as i've written him that he is he isn't remotely sexually predatory which which you know makes him unusual for a son of zeus <laughs> frankly <laughs> yeah but but you know it is it does mean that i mean obviously this is a, a 
a sort of feminist approach to the to the subject, or at least it's uh, this history from a woman's perspective. I don't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it it, doesn't, it comes across. It's very easy to do that because the men are also awful in it. But so uh, Athena's you know. pretty. Athena's pretty awful. She is, yeah. Well. Although I do still, I mean, this is my <laughs> this is my secret. I'm afraid I always love all of them, even the worst ones, even the men. <laughs> I love them all when I'm writing from their perspective. Because if I don't, then that the, I'm only going to write caricatures. You know, they have to be, they have to have feelings and be people. Even the ones who are yeah. gods, even the ones who are monsters, have to, you know, see themselves at least as as sympathetic. Because otherwise you know there, there won't be any depth to the writing so yeah in the moments where i i'm really interested to see how people are responding to athena already because it's really 50 50 people going i love her she is my favorite and she is so monstrous how could you do it and you're like oh well i guess that's probably about <laughs> well, right it, you know but it's both and you know but it, it, i wonder to what extent the, the people who created these myths were you know were were judging in that way as well or was it just was that just the mindset that met, you know, that if you are a god or if you are a king or if you are a man, that if you can take those things, you can take them? Or is there an... Because Zeus, you know, him, his, his sort of uh, sexual incontinence is, is not incredibly admirable. I, I, and I wonder if it ever... I'm sure was. it isn't uncommon either, though, if you see yeah. what I mean, in a world sure. where men had so much power and, and where slavery is so... I realise there are more enslaved people in the world today than there were in the ancient world, but there are more people full stop in the world today. Yeah. Um, and so the, the open acceptance of slavery means you have power over human beings as though they were objects or furniture yeah. or something. And so that immediately makes a, a, it makes rape and assault a, a commonplace. You know, slaves were beaten to death by sure. people. Uh, you know, these things did happen um, and, and didn't happen in an unusual way. I guess the, the myths arise across a really long period of time in a really huge geographical space, which is why they're always so contradictory, why you can't ever find a single timeline that makes sense of Helen or Achilles or and certainly not the gods. They are. I mean, you can't even find a coherent timeline within a single artwork sometimes of a god. You'll find something from like later in their existence or you know that they pick up in a battle as they go into a battle and you're like wait what um so you're constantly having to impose boring human time on gods who don't seem to um employ it let's say or or be bound by it but the question that you're asking dates back to again at the very earliest um or the very latest rather the the fifth century because it comes up in the melian dialogue in thucydides history of the peloponnesian war where Milos wants to stay neutral in uh, the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta in the south. Um, and uh, Athens says, no, you've got to be on our side. And Milos says, well, we'd like to be neutral. <laughs> we'd like to be, um, and, and in the future someone will describe us as Switzerland. Can we do that, please? Um, and the Athenians say no. And they say, well, then what will you do? And the Athenians say, well, we'll crush you. You know, We'll kill all the men and we'll enslave all the women and children. And the Melians say, but if you do that, what will happen when you don't have power? You know, you'll have set this precedent that, that this is how the powerless or the less powerful are treated. And, you know, the Athenians are completely icy in the face of it. And their response is, you know, that there's, the strong do what they want and the, the weak take what they must. And it's a it's a pretty brutal way of looking at the world, but a very accurate view of how empire works, I'm afraid. And so an imperial power, which Athens is in the fifth century, does essentially has the power to do whatever it wants and a little island state saying oh we'd like to be neutral please doesn't doesn't cut any ice with them at all 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, it's it's an incredibly entertaining book. It, it is it does cover some big subjects and some <laughs> har- harrowing subjects, but very artfully, I think. And and you know, it's 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 great to to turn Medusa into this incredibly sympathetic and and um, you know and deep character, and you know, and all the stuff that goes around Medusa as well, her head and her snakes and everything. Um, though it's you know, there's there's lots of funny stuff. The, the uh, I, I might pronounce this wrong. The grey eye of the is yeah, the, the grey eye are the are the old three three old women who share a, a tooth and an eye. Which yes. it, it feel, I mean, it's a it's a very again a very sort of funny conceit, and and you you get lots of fun out of it. I have to say as well, it feels like a sort of Monty Python thing, but I, I, I suppose <laughs> but I suppose in reality, Monty Python is taking the, almost something like the, the 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 in the Holy Grail. There's that night that shares three three bodies all sharing one three heads sharing one body it you know it's all it's it's almost like they uh they've taken this as their source rather than the other way around but yeah or Kerberos I suppose yeah, who's the yeah. you know, three-headed dog or Scylla who's a six-headed monster so sure. yeah multiple heads and single bodies are quite are quite common in in the sort of monstrous bit of you know the Greek myth has loads of those hybrid monsters where it's part part of one animal and part of another and and you often get either things that are gigantism or miniaturism, so something much too big, something much too small, um, and yeah, and multiple appendages on a single body is another of those ways in which monsters tend to be created. So, yeah, in a way, um, gorgons are unusual because they are quite—they're quite—they—they um, they pre gorgon heads, gorgon air, um predate gorgons. So we get loads of examples of them in visual arts. Um, from before we get any narrative involving a whole gorgon. Um, and, for example, Agamemnon has a gorgon head, a gorgonaeon is the word in Greek, um, on his shield in, in the Iliad. Um, so there's this sense of a sort of disembodied head. Um, and that can be connected way back to Gilgamesh. Uh, you know, there's a, a decapitated monster, Humbaba, in that 
Um, right. And so, you know, the, the, there have been lots of attempts to explain why these gorgon heads appear in places where they seem to be maybe to scare you away, as in on a shield, for example, or but also maybe to protect you. I mean, a shield has two, two jobs, right? To scare yeah. your enemy, but also to protect the person holding it. And gorgons seem to serve the same dual function. They appear to be both terrifying and apotropaic, protective of the person who has them on their side. And when you look at the earlier versions of them in particular, you can see loads of connections with the natural world. So they tend to have these very, very wide mouths and lolling tongues, which and they're associated with making a thunderous noise. Um, so that seems to be what how that works. Also, the snakes for hair, obviously, sometimes when you see the hair sort of all mushed up, um, you can see there's a lion's mane there too, you know, that that's what it looks like. They often have big tusks, like boar, um, beards sometimes, like wild pigs. So... It seems to be the case that they're designed to protect us from the natural world, from all the things that threaten us in the natural world. Snake bites killed people in both myth and reality. You know, wild cats or mountain cats, mountain lions, dangerous. Um, wild boar, I mean, Odysseus has a huge scar on his inner thigh as part of his great recognition scene from a boar hunt when he was a young man. Adonis, out of Aphrodite and Adonis, or Venus and Adonis, dies because of a, a boar tusk so you know these these encounters with the natural world are much more dangerous in the ancient world than they are to us now i guess and so gorgons are part of the way they reflect the fears of the societies which which create them I mean, you really bring the... I mean, they're fantastic stories. It's obviously great to work with, with this kind of source material because yes. the, the characters and the... Cast and of the, thousands. Well, the situations are great, but you also... It, it's put together so artfully and it's... It, it absolutely, you know, I only had a few days to read this book and I did it easily because I was absolutely kind of wrapped by it. It was... It, it's, 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 it's It's really fantastically written and, you know, and reminds... You know, I, I think, like, probably our generation had a bit of classical teaching at school uh, I don't know whether future de- de- generations after us had it quite so much but it reminded me of lots of stories I went to check some of them to see if they were <laughs> if, you'd, if you'd made anything up I mean obviously the, you know like you say there's lots of different versions isn't there because in your version I think the the, the, the lovely touch I think that you do which I, you pr- presumably have got from somewhere but it's not the version I remember is Perseus throwing away the eye and the oh yeah that's me great. I'm afraid yeah, yeah no, I, I love that. It. because what are you going to do with them you're holding a disgusting eye and a horrible tooth and my but version of him is so squeamish and so they are so revolting to him that, yeah yeah I'm afraid yeah no but that's but that's great but also it really highlights how he doesn't need to, you know once he's got them he doesn't he doesn't need to be I mean he isn't maybe in the original but he doesn't need to be so mean he doesn't he doesn't need to trick them he's got once he's tricked them he doesn't need to you know he, he can he can let them he can let them see and chew their food, whatever. But yeah, it's it's uh, it, it makes him into a spoiled. He's a sort of spoiled little, you know. Yeah, godson. He is spoiled. Yeah, so yeah it's, uh, I'm afraid he is spoiled. So it's uh, it's it. Well, look, it's it's. Uh, it, it, I really want people to discover most of this stuff themselves. So I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but it's it's. Uh, you know, you can tell um, why these books are so successful. When I met you at uh, doing the audiobooks, I was doing signings for my book. Yes. Uh, which, which I had to sign 500 copies of uh, front pieces of my book, which I thought was a bit much. Yeah, uh, and you, you I were really telling... felt for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, wait. <laughs> and you were telling me that you were halfway through doing 12,000 yeah. signing. 
Yeah, which... it, it ballooned up to over 13 in the end. So it was my whole, and it was during the heat wave. So my flat was just full of, <laughs> and I was like, trying to sign this. is such a first world problem, but it's like, I'm trying to sign a piece of paper and I'm sort of wilting in my hands of my boiling hot flat, which is, I might add, still now 10 degrees hotter than the outside world because it faces south. So yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I did, I did sign a lot. I can't deny it. If you're looking for a, a copy of this book, I, I think it's just about the case that an unsigned one is less rare than a signed one but there's not a lot in it <laughs> but that's you know it speaks of how popular they they are and they've become and obviously it's world it's a worldwide thing and i've seen you've had quite i mean you've got a quote from margaret atwood so i actually do one, yeah that was a really good day yeah incredible so i mean if that happened to me which is doubtful um especially after the jokes i've made about her she can sign i'm gonna go do it again she can sign remotely and she's got a special machine where she i i I riffed a little bit on that idea, and I hope Margaret. Did you, Richard? I hope Margaret Did you? Edward, <laughs> I hope Margaret Edward never sees that, and that will give me a quote. Uh, she, I, she's, but you know, I, I can I can see why she like. I think she's absolutely the greatest living author, but yep. I can see why she would like your your book because I think you know it is it is. If Margaret Atwood had written this, I would. If it said Margaret Atwood the front, I would. I would sort of believe it's. Oh, started. that's think, a lovely think, thing to I say. I think. It, I think it's up there. So. Um, Thank you. But so, you 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 you're doing stuff. You're selling lots of copies in America, which is probably the. the that's the, the plan. This one thing. doesn't come out there until February next year, right. February twenty-three. So, um, I have some very grumpy american fans going when's it here it's like it's February. <laughs> but it's because there was a really long delay between um a thousand ships in the uk and a thousand ships in the us because it took a really long time to um to sell ships in america because nobody thought there'd be a market for it <laughs> which, which turned out not to be the case so so that was good but uh they they all said no i mean so many people said no to ships so by the time they said yes, it, it took nearly two years for it to come out there. Right. And and then, so we've been trying to kind of squash the gap ever since. So I think Pandora's Jar came out here in October 2020 and they had it in, I should know this really, earlier this year, February this year, March this right. year, something like that. And then, um, so Stoneblind come, came out here in mid-September and it'll come out there in, in mid-February. So we are decreasing the gap quite quickly book by book but it can't all be done at once because publishing is just not that speedy a business and so how how did that feel when it when it was a when it a, got published in america and was a, a hit in america how does how, what what makes that happen <laughs> i don't really from... know that's the thing that that's the thing that people don't really allow for right. and it's quite difficult because i had been published in america before um ancient guide was published there um and amber fury which was called the furies there and Children of Jocasta, and they had all flopped really badly, you know. And when we were waiting for a thousand ships to come out in the US, people kept saying, Oh, you know, this time it'll be. And I just felt, since we've gone there already, I just felt like that Monty Python bit where he goes, <laughs> <laughs> He's had a bit of castle, and then it sank, and then I another one, and that sank, and then I another one, and that caught fire, and then it sank. It was like, Yeah, I have done this with my books. I know what it's like to fail in America. I have copious and <laughs> extended practice. Um, 
And then when Ships came out, it had already been shortlisted for the Women's Prize here, which I think made a difference. And it had been such a long gap, as I say, that I sort of vaguely worried that people would have lost interest. But actually, it had sort of gone the other way. You know, um, it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize in the April after it had been published the previous May. So it was published May 19. It was shortlisted April 20. So when it came out in, in the US in maybe January, I think, 21, They'd been waiting months going, well, apparently this book is great because it's been shortlisted for a big prize. When can we have it? And so there was a lot of pent up excitement, I think, when yeah. it came out. Um, and so that really helped it along. And I guess that there's a real passionate reading of myth community lurking around online. And that really helped. Um, and then so, you know, so it sold really well and everybody was really happy. Um but st they still weren't clamoring even then for Pandora's Jar, the non-fiction right. book which followed it. And then um, my, public, my fiction publishers decided that they would publish it. And then when they did, Barnes & Noble, which is the big you know, um, chain bookstore in the US, made it their book of the month. And wow. it, I, I have no idea which person made that decision, but to say that they've literally changed my life is, is simply <laughs> not an exaggeration. It's like, um, at some point, I really owe them a drink. <laughs> but that's <laughs> that interesting, way. isn't it? it? It might just, you know, these things... Because, you know, even something like Harry Potter, it came down to one person picking that book off a pile and, and, and going with it a little bit, didn't it? It's it's, it's really it, hard to it, think in those terms because it yeah. makes you accept how arbitrary it is. Yeah. But yeah. it's really arbitrary. And so you have to sort of accept that that's the case. You know, the, the Barnes & Noble pick, had it boosted up to, at one point this year, it was number two in the New York Times. <laughs> I can't even right. say it now without laughing. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? And I just, you look at like the top, they have a top 15 there rather than a top 10 and all the other books were like really serious books which you'd expect like proper history about Winston Churchill or you know I don't know there was the book that was at number one I'm sure it still is because it's been there for about a million years was about how your body processes trauma emotional trauma and physical trauma um and so there were loads of books that you would really expect it. And I just had this sort of image in my head of my book going into a sort of drinks party where all these respectable <laughs> books were. And my book is like wearing a big mustache and a hat and like, what? I belong here um, because it just seemed so mad. And I kept doing interviews where people were saying, so obviously when you set out to write your feminist version of Greek myths, you knew it would be a bestseller. No, not really. <laughs> not going to lie. Not so much, actually. I've been wanging on about this for ages. Nobody was interested at all. Well, it is a little, it's a, it does, it it has hit a sort of zeitgeist, I think. But I yeah. think also just, you know, it's arbitrary, but equally, I think something has to be really good as well. There may be tens of, you know, tens or hundreds of fantastic books out there that don't get picked off that pile or don't get to the right person. But I think eventually, you know, when someone, I think someone, you know, if you pick up, having not read any of the others, having, you know, get, going into this one, if this was on a book and a pile and I was deciding what I was going to promote in my bookshop, I would be very excited about, you know, if I if I discovered this. So I think when something's good, um, you have a better chance of that one person that matters chancing across it, you finding have to it. Hope. And, yeah, but yeah, it, but, you it, have but to it, hope. it takes but it's you know, but it's all equally it's it's I mean it's not good, but it's it's reassuring to other authors, I would say, that it it took a few goes for it that really to happen. did. And a lot yeah. of times I I feel it's sort of it's in the literary world, it's vaguely vulgar to talk about money, I know, but because I come from comedy and I'm basically therefore in mindset a grocer, I don't have that issue with it at all. And I think it's really, I think it's really important to acknowledge the role of, of luck, you know, and that's not, yeah. it's like Aristotle is really big on how you need luck in order to thrive. Um, so again, not a new concept, but it's an important one because people spend a lot of time 
responding as though, you know, you have control over it. And I, I really, really don't. I only have control over the bit that I do, which is making the best work I, I can do. But I've always done that. And, and I'd always done that with the books that weren't really successful. And I did it with the stand-up shows before then. And you've watched me fall apart in Edinburgh because, <laughs> you know, people are coming, but it doesn't really feel like anything's happening. And it's like, I was always trying my hardest. That's the one thing you can say about me is I'm a massive trier the whole time. It never stops. Yeah. But you just need to be lucky. And, and if you're not, that you can't you can't buy that back. You know, I'm lucky already that I don't have other responsibilities that I need to you know i don't have a day job so i can write all day if yeah. i want to that i don't have caring responsibilities so i can write because of that but there are lots of people who who don't have that good fortune and so when people say to me oh you make your own luck it's like yeah in a way because i'm always at my desk and i'm always working but there's a huge element that's outside of my control and i i should acknowledge that and honestly so should so should they i think it seems a bit I don't know, it seems a bit crass to me to just walk around everywhere. You know, that whole kind of, oh, yeah, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Yeah, that's true. But also, you still need to get lucky. <laughs> you do. And I think sometimes people just, you know, especially with comedy, I don't know if it's true of writers as much, but, you know, it's sort of a, you but you have a lot of, you have to have a lot of self-belief to push yourself through this. Mm. And so if you are, do become successful, it's very easy to go, yes, I was always destined for yes. this and I deserve this. And, you know, and then to go even more off the scale. So it's good that you've got it in perspective. Equally, you could argue, you know, you were a very fine stand-up and still are a very fine stand-up. <laughs> and the, the bad luck of maybe those shows not being as recognised as they could have been is that if you'd if your stand-up career had taken off to the extent that you didn't move into writing books you wouldn't mm. have had you know so often something something going wrong or something not working the bad luck is <laughs> it's part of the process out. yeah, yeah. No, so you know I think that's probably true and the yeah. nice thing about stand-up of course is that we we all know really from personal experience how much it can just be not up to you that yeah. it doesn't work out that night. You know, yeah. there are days, and I never really resolved it as a sort of theoretician. I just resolved it as a performer, like internally, I think. Um, but I never could see it from the outside. But there were days when I felt really nervous and I walked on stage and it came across as being really diffident or, you know, nervy or and, and the gig went badly. But there were other days when I felt just the same on the inside, but it came across as really appealing. Like, oh, who's this cute girl who's trying her best, but she's shy. And there were days when I felt really confident and it was like, great, this confident performer is ruling the gig. And other days where people went, she is so arrogant, I hate her. And yeah. you think, well, I, I was... I was the same on both of those days. <laughs> and so I think comedians of all people really understand that you can only control the, the bit that's you. You know, you yeah. can only control the stuff that you can control. If you turn up and the room has just turned before you get there, you can do a lot, but you still can't necessarily save it. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that, when you do Edinburgh and you talk to people after gigs, a lot of times everyone has the same kind of audience on the same night so there's yes. obviously some it's obviously about the news or, it's obviously <laughs> about the news or the weather or you know something in the in the way people are it's weird that like the way um the gigs uh well the the, the podcast i did this week um and which we we're recording this only about a few days before this goes out but the, but in between uh, the queen dying and the queen's funeral the audience was so up for comedy, I think. And so, yes. like, sometimes something, like, sometimes it, something being a terrible thing happening or, a, or, a, a, or something that affects everyone's psyche in that way can actually just ramp up the, 
the tension for for comedy, and everyone's really really delighted to have uh, comedy. You know, I had an exceptional gig. It was it was very good guests with the the podcast, but. It was, you know, an exceptional audience, and, and so it's sort of it is, it's, it is, it's a weird thing. And I guess with a book, that's that's, you know, apart from someone might be in a bad mood when they read it, yeah, and not in the movie. And that's certainly, you know, there's certainly books I've picked up that I've not enjoyed uh, uh, for whatever reason, and come back to them a few months later and thought they were the best thing ever. So you know, it, it, obviously there is a little, there's that on on an individual uh, le- level where you might not be ready for the book or not be in the right place for it. But yeah, it's it's. It's it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because as a, as a comedian, you what you 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 revel in that uh, immediate reaction from the audience, and as and then when you write a book, you you don't know. <laughs> you oh don't god, know it's, how it's it going kills down. me now. It kills me still now that you have to wait so long for some. You know, the yeah. joy of comedy is that you can walk on stage and think of the joke as you're there and find out immediately if it's good or not. And, you know, you might then fuck it up for the next 10 performances and spend but you know that it was once good and you can probably get it back if you just work out how to time it the way you did the first time or bring whatever you brought the first time. And whereas with a book, you know, you're there for so long. You know, 90,000 words takes me, I don't know, between 10 and 12 months to write. It's a long time to not have any... And this is book seven, is that right? Yeah, seven. So it's like... I've. I've been here before. I've dug my way out of this before, but that's still there's still no guarantee that you'll do it right this time. And certainly with Stoneblind, which is, as you say, it has a lot of tonal changes in it. So it goes yeah. from being very serious, very sad, you know, then very funny. I hope and and so it it was like it felt like such a sort of high wire act. It's like I really need to make sure I get you through these changes in mood without you going wait what i need to kind of make you feel like you're going up and down in a way which is enjoyable not slamming you into a wall with the kind of sudden shift and that was really and then of course you're just waiting and you, you, yeah. you know the whole the more and the further through you get the the heavier the book becomes because you've got this entire world that you're sustaining and all these characters and everything that's happening to them and nobody can look at it until you're done because all you can say to people is it's going to be really good i just have to get through this thing so that by the time you get to the last sort of 10 15,000 words it feels like running downhill with something enormous following you it's like oh i got to outrun it but it's it feels like it gets very tricky. I miss that instant endorsement of stand-up. Such a lot. is it? Is it like having a gorgon's head in a bag that you're trying it's not, to get? It's not like that because I would never be so unkind. Uh, it, it feels like it's got to be like a film version of this from this perspective. I know this has been films before, but do you, is is that something that's in the in the pipeline for, these, for these books? Yeah, I don't know. They would be so expensive to film because you know they're full. They're huge cast multiple outdoor sets and loads of monsters so you'd need loads of cgi so yeah. yeah i think you'd have to have a lot of money before you committed to this one there were they do though they people yeah. who make these things i mean you know it's it's got that sort of you know because of the scope because lord of the rings is the same as the yeah. Grimmits, and because game of thrones is sort of this kind of thing as well you know it, it they it is possible to make these things i think you know it feels it feels like certainly with this one, I think I think the Medusa story from Medusa's point of view is is such a is such a great um, pitch that I, I, I would hope it would uh, come off. Like what else? I'm, I hope I'm, so. We'll see. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they've been done. Uh, Ships was done on stage uh, yeah. a couple of times as a sort of full version, so like eleven hours long or something, um, yeah. and that was really good fun. Great. But yeah, I mean, that's a tough one again because it's all war and 
tragic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know. I hope I hope someone wants to adapt this, but who knows? It's, I'm, I still feel at that point where it's like, mm-hmm. um, so that's probably where <laughs> well, I am. We'll see. Hopefully, it will. Uh, I I'm jealous of you that you're getting to present Time Team. Oh yeah, I couldn't do this year though because I've ah. had to be away on a book tour. So oh okay, yeah, that I would have been there last weekend when I was starting the tour if I'd been able to do the dig. So yeah, I had an absolute ball. And Gus Casey Hayford is on the record and off it the nicest man alive. <laughs> so I, as much as anything else, I miss working with Gus. I miss being with Lawrence and Derek, the archaeology boys. I, I miss all of them, but I just couldn't. I, I couldn't fit any more things into this autumn. So. Yeah, I hope I'll get to work with them again next year. But, yeah, this year I've missed them. I've missed standing oh. around in a field, staring <laughs> at a thing, going, what is that? It's a dream, <laughs> it's a dream, what is that? <laughs> it's a dream job, Natalie. I can't think of anything better than getting it that job. It was such so, well, a laugh. Well, yeah. well done, even if, that was, even if it's over and you can't do it anymore because you're too successful. Um, <laughs> what? Uh... They might have me back next year. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm they presuming you replace me. There's probably some younger, thinner version of me standing next to a, you know, big dig site somewhere, going, "Oh yeah, that looks really cool," and then wearing a Snoopy t-shirt, and I'll be like, "Ah." <laughs> Um, what other books? I mean, are you obviously are, are extremely well read. I don't know if you if there are, if there are any more ancient texts that you haven't read, but what kind of books do you read? And is there anything you're reading at the moment that you'd like to recommend? Oh, or... what am I reading at the moment? My my, the, this whole desk is such a pit. I dare not turn the laptop round <laughs> to show you. But I am currently reading Magic in. How do I move that to make it work? Yeah. Sorry, everyone at home. I'm incredibly thick about this. <laughs> Magic in ancient Greece and Rome. Okay. Um, with a lovely picture of uh, Circe, I think, on the cover. Is that Circe? I should know this, really. Yes, it is. Um, and so, <laughs> yes, because of a future project, Richard. Okay. Terrific. Which, of course, is murdering people, I just haven't said. <laughs> oh, no! Giving it away. Um, and uh, you said you would, uh, you might do a little little reading for us. Would that Ooh, be something I will if you from want. your book? Yeah, that would like be nice. That? Yeah, that would be very nice because I think it's it's a beautifully written book. Thank you very much. The audio book is me, so everyone gets to hear me do this if they want to. Yes. Obviously, if you don't want to, you can listen to it on Radio 4, where it's been abridged <laughs> and is performed by the infinitely more talented Susanna Fielding. <laughs> so that's an option for you as well. There you go. So this is the very beginning. Gorgoneon. I see you. I see all those whom men call monsters. And I see the men who call them that. Call themselves heroes, of course. I only see them for an instant. Then they're gone. But it's enough. Enough to know that the hero isn't the one who's kind or brave or loyal. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, he is monstrous. And the monster? Who is she? She is what happens when someone cannot be saved. This particular monster is assaulted, abused and vilified. And yet, as the story is always told, she is the one you should fear. She is the monster. We'll see about that. Very good. It's a it's a great great opening and Thanks. Uh, I always and, want to and, add and, ba, 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 to the end of every opening <laughs> chapter I ever yeah, write. Yeah. And you should. That's I what could my... never resist it every single time. You should just have the East Enders drums at the end. <laughs> That's so what my sorry. my daughter my daughter does that when she I have to she writes through I I write I type them and she reads them to me and I have to put dun 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 in quite a lot. 
which I do enjoy, and I hope she Correct. never loses that. Uh, look, thanks so much, Natalie, uh, for talking to us. It's, it's been my uh, pleasure. I, I can't recommend the book enough, and I'm. Thank I, you. I, I wish I didn't have to read a book every week for this stupid podcast, or I'd go back and read all of your other ones straight away. But oh, I will try. Thank I'll try. You. I'll try and fit them in at some at some point in the future. But um, I get to read you. yours soon because I'm interviewing yes. you at Hay for the Hay Winter Weekend in November, you, which I'm you looking do. forward to enormously. Will you be bringing your puppet, Richard? Uh, I will bring my puppet. And there's, I will bring my puppet for you. And there's, if I remember, and there's one point of crossover in our books in, in that I describe, I discuss very. Very briefly, um, uh, Athena's uh, the, the the spunk on <laughs> the spunk <laughs> when she gets spunked up by of the by the blacks. <laughs> Would I, I ever have thought it could be any other bit of a story than that? It is, it is relevant to my... Never uh, change, Richard. <laughs> and, then a, and, and a child grows from the, uh, from the woolen... So I, was, I, I thought, this sounds familiar. Sounds like I've written about it in my book, The Blacksmith God. And you, can't, you can't get pregnant from a blacksmith coming on your thigh, is what I... It's what you've learned from this. That's what that's what I would say to people, <laughs> but that's not what the myths say. Anyway, thank you very much, Natalie Haynes. Thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, for all your hard work. I'm not quite sure who the guest is next week, uh, but uh, it will be someone fantastic. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out. <laughs>